Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. The U.S. launches more strikes against Houthi missiles in Yemen after another attack on a U.S.-owned ship in the Red Sea. More and more Middle Eastern countries are getting caught up in regional tensions. We take a closer look at what's happening between Pakistan and Iran and the details of the conflict. Republicans continue to favor former President Trump over Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in a new poll and the latest update on a requested probe into Georgia prosecutor Fonnie Willis. Close to 180 congressional Republicans asked the Supreme Court to keep Trump on Colorado's ballot. Find out why they think that should be the outcome. The House and Senate passed a short-term spending bill yesterday, avoiding a government shutdown, and some House conservatives are fuming. Entities Melina Weiskup reports. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is proposing a new rule that could potentially save consumers billions of dollars. We sit down with Entity Business host Don Ma. NTD's sixth international figure painting competition held its award ceremony last night. We take a look at some of the winning artworks as well as some honorable mentions. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone and happy Friday. Today is January 19th. Yes, got the weekend coming up and I'm really excited about it. Now that that polar freeze is a little bit behind us, hopefully mm -hmm. people can have a little more fun. But in terms of the news, you know, analysts are saying that the U.S. response to the Houthis right now, it does risk creating a wider conflict, but it's just as much a risk as not doing anything. And they're saying that it's a great opportunity for the U.S. to promote free navigation globally. Right. It's also... <clears throat> when you consider in, over in the South China Sea, <clears throat> excuse me, with China's man-made made islands that are harassing its neighbors. <laughs> oh, I know, and there, yeah, that's, that's definitely another region where the navigation is so important. <clears throat> excuse me um, for, my cuff, uh, for my voice here, but so heading to the top news, the U.S. launched new strikes against Houthi anti-ship missiles in Yemen yesterday. The military says Houthis were aiming them at the Red Sea and deemed them an imminent threat to Navy vessels and shipping. The Houthis say they are acting in solidarity with Palestinians. They have vowed to keep attacking ships in response to strikes by the U.S. and the U.K. President Biden acknowledged yesterday that strikes by the U.S. had not stopped the Houthi attacks. He says a military response will continue. The Pentagon says the U.S. is not at war with the Houthis and that it's only working with its partners in self-defense. The U.S. says two of the Houthis' anti-ship missiles hit near a U.S.-owned tanker last night but caused no injuries or damage. The Houthis claimed responsibility for the attack and boasted of scoring direct hits. And more and more Middle Eastern countries are getting caught up in the regional tensions. Pakistan struck inside Iran's territory yesterday in an apparent retaliation for earlier strikes by Iran. Entity's Jason Perry has the story. The United States gave very strong warnings early on about the possible spread of the war between Israel and the Iran-backed terrorist group Hamas. President Biden said this soon after the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. To any country, any organization, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word, don't. 
And on Thursday, State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller reiterated this point. We've been incredibly concerned about uh, the potential for escalation since October 7th, and that's why we have engaged in intense diplomatic efforts to try to prevent escalation. However, it appears more and more countries are getting involved in one way or another. This week, Iran launched strikes in Syria, claiming they were targeting the Islamic State terrorist group. Iran also launched an attack in northern Iraq at what Iran claims was an Israeli intelligence building. And more shockingly, on Wednesday, Iran launched missiles into nuclear-armed Pakistan. Well, on Thursday, Pakistan didn't waste much time and responded by firing missiles and attack drones into Iran at what it says were Baloch separatists, which Pakistan considers a terrorist group. Iran's interior minister said two men, three women and four children were killed in a village a few miles from Iran's border. Pakistani residents shared their thoughts after Pakistan's attack in Iran. If Iran attacked first and our army retaliated to the Iranian strikes today, I stand with our army. The whole country stands with them. They should both try to find a mutual solution to the problem through negotiations. It is better to reach a solution and try to avoid further hostility. On Thursday, President Biden was asked about the Iran-Pakistan situation. Iran is not particularly well-liked in the region. Yeah, and uh, where, where that goes, we're working on now. I don't know where that goes. Meanwhile, on Thursday, India sent its Navy to rescue a crew on board a U.S.-owned ship that was attacked by the Iran-backed Houthi terrorist group off the coast of Yemen. Turkey's foreign minister said yesterday that Iran and Pakistan do not want to escalate tensions. He said he'd urge his counterparts in the two countries to quickly help restore calm. And we're bringing in David Wormser now for more insight. He is an analyst for Middle East Affairs at the Center for Security Policy. Good morning, David. Good to see you. So first, Iran and Pakistan both say their intention was to target militant groups. Do you think this is it or is there maybe more behind it? Well, I think there's a, there's slightly more behind it is that Iran, if you look at Iran right now, it's struck out uh, pretty harshly at Syria, at, uh, at U.S. and in, uh, in, in both Syria and Iraq uh, against uh, ISIS, essentially, in Syria, now struck against uh, Pakistan. And it ultimately is behind what happened with Hamas uh, and uh, Hezbollah, who's launching the war on Israel. And it's behind what's happening with the Houthis and stopping our shipping in the in the bubble Mandeb Straits. So something is afoot in uh, Iran where they're simply in a very aggressive mood. Now, there are approximate causes to this immediate attack. One was that uh, Colonel Javan Dafar, fairly senior colonel or uh, officer in the uh, Iranian IRGC, uh, Revolutionary Guard, was killed by Baloch separatists from Pakistan. So that's what precipitated it. And it probably will stay fairly limited between Pakistan and Iran because that's not the big war. And China will make sure that it stays tamped down because they're allies with both. But it does show that we're, we're entering a period with Iran where it's, it's, it's uneasy, it's, it's restive, and that's very dangerous. Yeah, and you did mention that uh, Iran has launched these strikes in Iraq, Syria, and Pakistan, and that's within 24 hours. So do you think, or what is Iran trying to do? Do you think there is an agenda behind this? 
Well, I think there's several things Iran's up to. First is that it wants to break any Western alliance that's emerging between, say, Israel and Saudi Arabia and UAE. And, and Pakistan, while not entering peace with Israel, certainly has warmed, not warmed, it's, it's melted a little bit the frozen uh, hostility that, that is between Israel and Pakistan. That worries Iran. So, first of all, they want to create sort of a strategic momentum in the region against the West. Uh, and then the second thing is that we have to keep an eye on their nuclear program. Every single time that Iran reaches forward and lurches forward in its nuclear program, it acts in a very destabilizing way in the region to divert attention from it. So it sounds almost kind of logical, but, but the more they act aggressively, the less we focus on their nuclear program and focus on other things, and then try to come to some sort of uh, understanding with Iran to calm the situation down, which gets them off the hook of lurching forward on their nuclear program. Right. So about what you said about destabilizing the region. So how dangerous do you think these strikes are in light of the tensions that already exist there? Well, they are they are dangerous. While I do think they're going to keep a lid on it, the fact that you have a nuclear power uh, involved, which is Pakistan, the fact that it was an unprovoked, well, uh, semi-unprovoked attack on Pakistan, uh, that, that, you, that, that has got to be concerning because uh, those two countries don't have the sort of breaks on their uh, behaviors that you would find, say, with the Israelis or with some of the others, the Indians and so forth. So you could see this escalate, even if that wasn't the original intention of the two countries. Hmm. So just quickly, tell me quickly how this is connected to the war in Gaza. Well, it's connected in the war in Gaza, I think, in part because Iran is lashing out against all its enemies. It sees them all as one front. So it sees the uh, display of strength and resolve against Pakistan to be highly reflective of how it will be seen in the region to the west, toward Israel, toward Saudi Arabia, and so forth. So it, it's, it's a thug, and a thug will act, has to act tough. And sometimes it has to beat up the guy next to you who's weaker rather than beat up the Israelis who are fighting back now. And to some extent, the United States, which is, while still too weak a response, is responding finally against the Houthis. Hmm. Very interesting insights. Thank you so much, David Wormser. I appreciate it. Thank you. Israel's military pushed deep into the southern city of Han Yunus yesterday. The IDF says troops eliminated dozens of terrorists in close quarters combat with tank and air support. Meanwhile, Israel's prime minister appears to be rejecting calls from the U.S. for a two-state solution. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has an update on the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's military says one of its brigades Thursday pushed further south than any of its troops before. Fierce battles and close-quarter combat were reported inside Han Yunis. The IDF says it killed 60 Hamas terrorists over a 24-hour period, with 40 in the southern city. Israel says Hamas is operating out of Nasser Hospital, the enclave's largest functioning hospital. Prime Minister Netanyahu says around two-thirds of Hamas's combat regiments have been destroyed, and that clearing the territory of terrorists would be next. He vowed to achieve a decisive victory, saying it will take many more months. Netanyahu appeared to reject the idea of a Palestinian state, declaring Israel needs security control over all territory west of the Jordan River in any future arrangement. He called it a necessary condition that collides with the idea of sovereignty. I tell this truth to our American friends, and I also stop the attempt to impose a reality on us that would harm Israel's security 
A prime minister in Israel should be able to say no, even to our best friends. The leader says Israel is ready to recruit countries in the region to support a reconstruction effort after the war, and that conditions are clear with war cabinet discussions well underway. To destroy Hamas, completely demilitarize Gaza, and to have a civilian administration that doesn't terrorize Israel or preach its destruction. The U.S. is calling on Israel to scale back its offensive and says a Palestinian state should come after the war. Without a tangible path to the establishment of a Palestinian state, there are no other partners in the region who are going to step forward and help with the reconstruction of Gaza. The State Department says Secretary Blinken has commitments from nearby Arab countries to help rebuild, but only with a clear path forward. On medicine for hostages, Netanyahu stated the Red Cross refused to help, so a Qatari mediator was used instead. He said that the medicine will reach every last abductee who needs it, and I expect him to keep his word. Qatar says the medicine arrived Wednesday, but did not confirm if hostages had received it. Qatar's spokesman warned of the war expanding into what he called a regional spillover. In the Red Sea, in Lebanon, in Iraq, and even in Syria, and now uh, the situation between Iran and, uh, and its neighbors. Turkey's foreign minister said Thursday Iran and Pakistan do not want to escalate tensions and says he urged his counterparts to quickly help restore calm. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. European lawmakers adopted a resolution on Thursday calling for a permanent ceasefire in Israel's war against Hamas. But only on the condition that the terrorist group be eliminated and all its hostages released. The resolution is non-binding. It was adopted by 312 votes in favor, 131 against, and 72 abstentions. It's the first time the parliament called for a par permanent ceasefire. Israel has vowed to dismantle Hamas to ensure it can never repeat an attack like the one on October 7th. Since the attack, the EU has struggled to strike a balance between supporting Israel's right to defend itself and ensuring the rights of civilians on both sides are protected. European lawmakers also expressed deep concern at the declining humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. They asked for a two-state solution to be put back on track. Up next, Republicans continue to favor former President Trump over Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in a new poll and the latest update on a requested probe into Georgia Prosecutor Fani Willis. Congressional Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to keep Trump on the Colorado ballot. Find out why they think the state ruling should be reversed. Regulation, someone's got to do it, but who? Right now, it could be a federal agency if the law is vague, but the Supreme Court suggests it might take that privilege away. What that would mean for you, coming up. Welcome back. Republicans continue to favor former President Trump over Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in a new poll. Meanwhile, Trump is pushing his strong stance on immigration by urging Congress not to compromise on a border deal. Plus, the latest update on a requested probe into Georgia prosecutor Fonnie Willis. We blasted it. According to data shared Thursday by ABC News, most Republicans are satisfied with former President Trump as the nominee rather than Governor Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. 
The ABC News Ipsos poll conducted January 16th and 17th found that 75% of Republicans say they would feel satisfied with Trump as the GOP's presidential nominee, compared with 64% for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and 50% for Nikki Haley. And similar to other polls, 73% of the adults polled said Trump was the strongest leader compared to the other two. These Republicans and GOP leaners see Trump as the candidate who best represents their personal values and understands the problems of people like them. But it's notable that Trump's favorability increased in one area. Since a similar poll conducted before the Iowa caucuses, 12% more Americans believe Trump has the best chance of getting elected in November. With ratings like these, Trump feels like he's already won. He's been aggressively touting his border policies at campaign rallies. Because right now we have millions of people streaming into our country. It's an invasion. Remain in Mexico. You think that was easy to get? I got it. Trump said on Truth Social that he didn't think Congress should do a border deal at all unless we get everything needed to shut down the invasion. President Biden faces high disapproval on the border issue. Striking a deal could help Biden politically. Meanwhile, Trump's been having meetings about the deal. President Trump is not wrong. He and I have been talking about this um, uh, pretty frequently. I talked to him uh, night before last about the same subject. On the other hand, Trump is battling with a number of legal woes as he climbs back to the White House. In a win for Trump, a Georgia judge has ordered a hearing into allegations that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and the lead prosecutor were involved in an improper relationship. Trump co-defendant Mike Roman made the allegations in a court filing on January 8th. He said Wade has been benefiting financially in legal fees and that he's been using taxpayer funding to take Willis on lavish vacations. Judge Scott McAfee has given Willis until February 2nd to respond. Meanwhile, Republican Governor Brian Kemp doesn't want to get involved. In response to Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's request that he open an investigation, Kemp said it's not his job. He referred her to the state's oversight committee. Nevada's Republican governor endorsed former President Trump yesterday. This offers major backing in a key swing state that Trump is looking to win easily in a caucus next month. Governor Joe Lombardo told the Nevada Independent yesterday he believes the economy and foreign affairs were more stable under Trump. He also said, for all practical purposes, the race is over. Trump endorsed Lombardo during a 2022 run for governor. Nevada has two nominating contests next month. A primary the state is required to run because of a 2021 law. And a caucus the Nevada state GOP is holding two days later. The Nevada GOP will only give the winner of the caucus delegates. They said any candidates signing up for the primary would be barred from the caucus. Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis chose the caucus. Nikki Haley opted for the primary. And the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire is coming up next week. Make sure you don't miss our special coverage. Join entities Steve Lenz and Tiffany Meyer for another exciting election night on The Nation Decides 2024. Exclusive on the ground access and special guests. Watch the action live on Tuesday, January 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And around 180 congressional Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to keep Trump on Colorado's ballot. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senate, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senate, Senator Ted Cruz, and other and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise were among those who signed an amicus brief submitted yesterday. 
The lawmakers argue the Colorado court interpreted Section 3 of the 14th Amendment improperly. The brief says enforcement of Section 3 should involve Congress to protect from abuse by state officials. They also argue that a state court has no right to circumvent Congress. That's because Congress is able to interject on Section 3 with a two-thirds vote up to the time a candidate holds office. The brief also states no insurrection occurred. It references Trump's statements asking demonstrators to act, quote, peacefully and patriotically. Trump is to remain on the Colorado ballot for now, pending a ruling by the Supreme Court. Around 40 briefs have been submitted to the high court since it agreed to hear Trump's appeal. An update on the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Hunter Biden has agreed to give a closed-door deposition in Congress. He will appear before lawmakers from the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. The GOP committee chairmen say they look forward to Hunter Biden's testimony. The committees also plan to schedule President Biden's brother, James Biden, to provide testimony. The president's son initially resisted giving closed-door testimony and said he would only testify publicly. House Republicans began contempt proceedings against him after he failed to comply with the subpoena. The Supreme Court is signaling that it's going to rein in federal agencies' regulatory power. Here to tell us about this is Caleb Kruckenberg. He's an attorney for separation of powers at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Caleb, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. What is the Chevron deference? <laughs> Chevron deference is a judge-made rule that says when federal administrative agencies decide what the law says, what the law that Congress said in a matter of their expertise, then federal judges are required to accept whatever they say as long as it's reasonable. And while that sounds kind of okay and basic, what it actually means for judges is that they are required to follow an administrative agency's understanding of the law, even if the judges disagree. Okay, so Justice Gorsuch says the government always wins. So what is this going to mean for Americans and businesses if they overrule it? Well, so that's been the rule since 1984, is that the government wins. And, and basically, if you're fighting an agency, uh, the, the cards are stacked, the deck is stacked against you. If that's overturned, that is a major shift in administrative regulation and, more importantly, government control in our daily lives. And, and I think this could be an extraordinarily significant change from the court. Okay, so what are some of the changes that maybe small or medium-sized businesses can be expecting? Well, administrative agencies, they run everything. I mean, it's from the way you process credit cards to the way you buy goods and services. I mean, it's, it's really every aspect of business, every aspect of daily life. And the whole idea of administrative agencies and, and deference is that all of the details of living in a complicated society are decided by administrative agencies. So if we change the rules for who's making the ultimate decisions, this has profound implications for everybody, uh, no matter what you do. Yeah, and that Chevron deference would apply when the law is a little bit ambiguous, so the courts would just defer to those federal agencies. AI is basically starting to just overtake society. It's, it's basically in everything. And the administrations have a, a big role in regulating that. So how would overruling Chevron deference affect that? 
Well, AI is a great example. So AI is something that people on, on the Capitol Hill have been saying should be regulated. We should have federal administrative agencies setting all kinds of rules for the use of AI in our, our daily lives or in, techno or in commerce. And if administrative agencies get deference, if they get to decide what the law says, what the rules are for us, um, then they get to decide when we use AI or, or when we use these kinds of new technologies. And they're really driving the law. And I think what the, the Supreme Court has finally recognized and what was really clear this week is that agencies don't get to decide that question. Uh, judges are really the ones who decide what the law says. That's what judges are supposed to do. Um, and this is about taking power back from executive departments, from executive agencies, and putting it back in Congress where it belongs. So this is all in its early stages here. The Supreme Court suggesting that it might just curb the doctrine as opposed to completely disavowing it. What do you expect to happen? Well, I, I think it's very clear to me that the Supreme Court is going to overrule Chevron deference. And what they're, they're going to say basically is, we'll listen to an agency. Maybe they have expertise, but they don't get to tell us the ultimate question. We're going to look at a statute and decide what it means. Um, and that, I think, is a very simple and very sort of basic constitutional rule that the, the court's going to go back to. What remains to be seen, though, is what happens with all of these old rules that were passed by agencies using Chevron deference. And I think there is going to be a lot of litigation and a lot of uncertainty in the coming years about how we stop all of the bad things that happened over the last 40 years. Very important topic and great analysis from you. Caleb Kruckenberg, attorney for Separation of Powers at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Thank you. Coming up, the Justice Department calls it a failure that should not have happened. A new report is out on the police response to the Uvalde school shooting. The House and Senate passed a short-term spending bill yesterday, avoiding a government shutdown. And some House conservatives are fuming. NTD's Melina Wisecup reports after the break. Welcome back. A failure that should not have happened. That's what the Justice Department is saying about the police response to the 2022 Uvalde school shooting, which killed 19 children and two teachers. The White House today calling for more gun control. Entity's Iris Tao brings us this report. In a nearly 600-page report released on Thursday, the Justice Department concludes that critical failures in both in tactics and leadership were to blame for why police officers waited for over an hour before confronting a gunman at an elementary school in Valdi who ended up killing 21 people there. Attorney General Merrick Garland saying this in Uvalde after meeting with the families of the victims. Failures in leadership, in tactics, in communications, in training and in preparedness were made by law enforcement lawyers and others. I also told the families and survivors how deeply sorry I am for the losses they suffered that day and for the losses they have suffered every day since. 
The single most critical tactical failure, the report says, was a decision made by local police officers to classify the incident as a barricaded standoff as opposed to an active shooter scenario, which would have made them actually go straight in and take down the shooter immediately. Another critical failure was a lack of a clear leadership. According to a report, some police officers were actually confused about who was really in charge on the scene. The families of some of the victims saying this, and you've after getting briefed on the report. Watch. I guess the next step is to find out what will be done with this information. Hopefully that this will bring some changes and some accountability that we have been fighting and asking for since the very beginning. Meanwhile, President Biden again calling for stricter gun control. He wrote in the Thursday statement that, quote, we must ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. The families of Evaldi deserve nothing less. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. The House and Senate passed a short-term spending bill yesterday, avoiding a government shutdown. It's the third time this fiscal year Congress kicked the can down the road on funding, and House conservatives are fuming. And today's Melina Wisecup has the details. Both the House and Senate raced to pass a temporary extension to government funding, but it didn't slide by with no opposition. There were 18 Republicans in the Senate who opposed it, as well as more than 100 Republicans in the House who opposed it. And there were more Democrats, as a matter of fact, who voted to pass this than Republicans, which just shows the level of frustration that Republicans have over this spending issue. To speak to the point of why there is opposition over this particular bill, while there are those who are are always opposed to continuing resolutions because they just see them as an extension or delay of Congress's inability to budget. You have other Republicans now who are trying to push the message that they do not want to fund the Department of Homeland Security without first seeing border policy change. Then you have the concern over just the sheer level of government spending. Congressman Chip Roy, who's a member of the Freedom Caucus himself, took to the House floor today to remind lawmakers what actually they're funding with this temporary extension. Here's what he had to say, along with how his speaker, Mike Johnson, has tried to fend off some of this criticism. We will fund a weaponized Department of Justice and FBI going after parents like Scott Smith and Mark Houck. I've got more, because that's what we're doing. We are voting to fund a federal bureaucracy that has war with the American people while we indebt our, gen our children for generations. And this is an important thing for us because it allows us to fight for our policy changes, our policy writers in those spending bills. And it takes time to do that. And so the reason we need just a little bit more time on the calendar is to allow that process to play out. The question is, will they actually be able to reach that goal with this three-week extension that they're giving themselves? The Senate has only passed three of its 12 appropriations bills, and the House has passed seven of its 12. There are still five more for the House to consider, and that's been a challenge for this Republican-led House because of inter-party disagreement over certain policies and priorities. So the question now is, will this third continuing resolution during this fiscal year be the last one? Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Wisecup, NTD News. Texas is not giving back control of Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, even after a stern warning at a deadline by Homeland Security. Meanwhile, lawmakers in D.C. are moving closer to impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NTD's Arian Pastar has a border update. Tensions keep rising at the border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Homeland Security had given Texas a Thursday deadline to evacuate Shelby Park. However, it seems like Texas is defying the order. 
Fox News published this footage on Thursday afternoon, saying Texas National Guard is installing even more razor wire and fencing instead of evacuating. Texas also reportedly started arresting illegal immigrants, as you can see here. And it's not clear how the federal government will respond to that. Last week, Homeland Security sent a letter saying if Texas doesn't hand the park back, the agency will consider all other options available to restore Border Patrol's access to the border. Meanwhile in D.C., the House Homeland Security Committee holding the second impeachment hearing for Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This is not a policy difference. The truth is, Secretary Mayorkas has disregarded court orders. The mother of a young woman who was allegedly killed by an MS-13 gang member testified at the hearing. Had DHS employee employees performed a visual inspection of the assailant's body, they would have seen MS-13 gang-related tattoos on his body. House Republicans are now reportedly planning to mark up an impeachment resolution on January 31st. That's according to multiple news outlets. However, Chairman Mark Green reportedly said he's neither confirming nor denying the date. Also on Thursday, both Democratic senators of Colorado said Congress should support communities receiving immigrants. There's a reason why the Constitution of the United States assigns this responsibility, that is the responsibility of immigration, not to one city or not to one state. They want Congress to give work authorization to immigrants in the U.S., allocate more federal funding to communities receiving immigrants, and more. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Another round of weather chaos is forecast today. Storms that have turned roads into icy death traps and frozen people to death from Oregon to Tennessee are expected to hit both coasts. The storm is expected to bring a wide area of one to three inches of snow. In some places, there will be even more snow, with certain areas getting three to six inches or possibly even more. The storm will move across the Midwest and Northeast until Friday evening. In Nebraska, a severe winter storm dumped thick snow over the streets on Thursday. Streets in Norfolk and Grand Island were seen entirely covered as snow continued to fall and fierce winds were blowing. On the West Coast, Oregon's governor declared a statewide emergency Thursday. Thousands have been without power since Saturday in parts of Oregon's Willamette Valley after an ice storm caused extensive damage. Coming up, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is proposing a new rule that, would, that could put an end to excessive overdraft fees from banks and credit unions, potentially saving consumers billions of dollars. Alaska Airlines continues to cancel its Boeing 737 MAX flights after its mid-air cabin blowout earlier this month. We get the details from the host of Entity Business. And a scare at an airport. A jet skidded off the taxiway at Rochester International yesterday. More on what went wrong after the break. Welcome back. We have NTD business host Don Ma with us now to discuss billions in potential savings for consumers in a year. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is proposing a new rule that could curb excessive overdraft fees charged to customers by large banks and credit unions. It could potentially save consumers as much as $3.5 billion a year. Don, tell us about this rule. 
So this rule would only apply to banks or financial institutions uh, with at least uh, $10 billion in assets. And uh, it's going to require big banks and credit unions uh, to be as forthcoming as possible with their overdraft fees uh, and overdraft loans as they are compared to other products uh, that they offer. And uh, just a quick mention here, uh, banks uh, with uh, $10 billion in assets account for the largest share of deposit accounts that consumers have in the United States. So that's important uh, right there. Um, so what this new rule, uh, this proposed rule would aim to tackle is uh, closing a long-standing loophole that banks have uh, used uh, to transform overdraft into profitable uh, uh, like uh, massive junk fee harvesting tools. Um, this is according to the agency. Now, overdraft, uh, according to this uh, group, is uh, essentially a loan, uh, according to the agency, and that it's uh, it's very large financial institutions um, would still be able to offer these types of uh, loans that they argue after the the proposed rule goes into effect, as long as they comply with longstanding consumer protections on loans. So for example, this would require them to, uh, the banks to uh, disclose interest rates and fees as they would if they offered a credit card or uh, other types of loans. Yeah. Um, the banks or uh, could simply just offer a flat fee, which the agency is considering, is considering between three and $14. And the proposed rule is open for public comment until April 1st. And after that, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau will consider those comments and decide if the proposed rule would need to be uh, amended or whether to issue a final rule. And the rule likely won't go into effect until uh, 2025. 2025, all right. But what about on the customer side? How have they been impacted by those overdraft fees? Right. So according to the agency, uh, bank customers are often actually very surprised of these overdraft fees. And those who can least afford them, it seems like, are the most frequently charged uh, with those fees. And the, the Bureau says that uh, con con customers are typically charged $35. Uh, on an overdraft loan, even though the majority of customers uh, don't actually take out that much of overdraft, uh, and they usually just pay it back in uh, in about three days. So it seems like from their perspective, it could be an unfair amount that they're charged $35. And the agency estimates that roughly 30, uh, 23 million households pay uh, a, a year of these fees. Uh, and after the proposed rule, um, the, the rule could help save each household uh, around $150 uh, each year. Uh, but you know, dis despite the potential benefits, there are some voices who are, are against uh, this proposed rule. For example, uh, the president of the American Bankers Association and the CEO warned that consumers actually might suffer because of this rule, saying that uh, the proposal will make it significantly harder for banks to offer overdraft protection to customers, uh, including those who have very few, if at all, other means of accessing needed liquidity, and uh, arguing that this effectively, effectively is proposing to take away overdraft protection from customers who want it. So there's uh, two sides to this, it seems like. Yeah, and Don, in challenging these overdraft fee practices, President Biden said, banks call it a service, I call it exploitation. Next topic, do you have anything for retail for us? Yeah, so on that front, Macy's announced yesterday that it's going to cut its workforce by 3.5% and close five stores nationwide 
This move is intended to cut costs and recover from an inventory surplus dating back to 2022. And the cuts translate to almost 2,400 jo jobs across the U.S. And Macy's employs over 94,000 people. And the cuts come as an investor group puts pressure to take Macy's private with an almost $6 billion buyout offer. A Macy's spokesperson said that the layoffs are part of a plan to become a more streamlined company and to meet the needs of an ever-changing consumer and as well as a marketplace. Right. Jobs definitely getting slashed. We've seen Wayfair, Amazon, Google was war warning of more, but also in the EU, uh, companies are slashing jobs. But also, flights are being slashed for a change of topic here with Alaska Airlines Boeing 737. So tell us more about that. Right. Yeah, all eyes on, on that front. Alaska Airlines said that yesterday it's extending cancellations of its Boeing 737 MAX 9 flights through Sunday. The Federal Aviation Administration is still reviewing inspection data from an initial group of 40 planes. Uh, the FAA said last week that 40 of the 171 grounded planes must be reinspected before they would review the results. Then the agency would determine if it's safe to allow MAX 9s to resume flying. This follows the Alaska Airlines mid-air cabin blowout on January 5th. Alaska and United Airlines are the only two U.S. carriers using the aircraft. They've had to cancel thousands of flights so far this month. Just a quick update there. Yeah, Boeing's got some trouble there. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was about to fly out of Davos from that global summit, and his Boeing 737 had a failure with some oxygen system there, so they had to switch planes out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, and a plane skidded off the runway at the International Airport in Rochester, New York yesterday. Airport officials said 50 passengers and three crew members were on board when the aircraft slid onto the grass. An American Airlines spokesman told CBS the jet exited the taxiway due to snowy airfield conditions. The jet left Philadelphia and landed in Rochester at around 4 p.m. Local time, that's local time when the slide occurred. Passengers were transferred by bus to the terminal. No injuries were reported. Stay with us. Winners of NTD's International Figure Painting Competition were announced at the awards ceremony last night. We take a look at some of the artwork and dive into the deeper meanings behind them. Thanks for staying with us. NTD wrapped up its sixth international figure painting competition with an awards ceremony at the Salma Gundy Club in New York City. After over a week of exhibition and a review from judges, winners were finally announced last night. Take a look. Merciful and A total of 60 entries from 20 countries around the world were selected for the final exhibition. After a review from judges, there was no gold award given out this year but three silver awards and five bronze awards were handed out. 
The triptych, Buddha's Grace, created by three artists from Japan and Taiwan, won the highest prize of the competition, the Silver Award. The work demonstrated themes of contemporary mythological scenes. The biggest challenge is that these paintings are very large, and then there are also many characters. At the beginning of the design process, in order to put all three paintings together as one, we had to put a lot of effort into the planning. Each of us probably has at least 20 to 30 sketches for each of our works. This piece, painted by Xing Jiang from Taiwan, titled Choosing Conscience Amid Political Unrest, won the Profound Humanities Award. Six artists also took home the Outstanding Technique Award, two artists with the Outstanding Youth Awards, as well as 35 honorable mentions. As one of the top figure painting competitions in the world, the traditional artwork promotes the concepts of innocence, purity, and beauty. This competition is really unique in that it places an emphasis on really letting classical aesthetics and ideals of truth and beauty. The judges encourage contestants to continue to sharpen their skills while staying true to ideas and themes that would promote the return of tradition and inspire the minds of future generations. And I'm really grateful that there's a wonderful competition that NTD puts on that we can all get together and, and view and, and enjoy one another's work and always worth it to come and it's fantastic. An album of this year's paintings will be released after the exhibit is over. The more than 60 finalist painting will be on display at the Salma Gundi Club in Manhattan, open to the public free of charge until 6 p.m. today. Such detailed and so beautiful. I think it all very deserved. Must have been a really tough decision there. Yeah, and it's really great how all these paintings can bring together so many different cultures. I was just saying that, looking at all these participants from all across the world. Yes, and we're going to go deeper into some of these paintings. I went there and wanted to explore what these paintings stand for. Take a look. We're about to explore some marvelous paintings created with adept skill, imbued with symbolism, ones telling of tragedy and others hope. Some of these works offer deeper insights through their depictions of scenes that go beyond this physical world of ours. Here, a pair of Tibetan youth, the painter's careful attention to capture the rosy cheeks. In her hair, a light breeze in which a flame's dancing. Vivian, calm, focused, ready. Regally presented in frontal posture, mountains of her family's home in the background as she gazes to the future, grounded by the elements. To South America, a tale of the Inca. Legend holds the two were created by a deity from the foams of Lake Titicaca to establish their civilization. He wields a staff bearing the holy Chicana symbol. And revival, a girl being purified physically and mentally as she engages in the spiritual discipline Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, a group facing tragedy, over 20 years persecution in China by the ruling Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. Here, police manipulate adherence child, a tear rolling down her cheek, to cause them to give up their faith, bound and scarred with golden light at their crowns. Hong Kongers stand up for their freedom in the face of a draconian national security law imposed by the CCP, waving banners reading Free Hong Kong and in Chinese, Heaven will destroy the CCP. The right panel of the triptych shows vast arrays of divine beings, Buddhas, 
Below fall corrupted gods and evil spirits heading for the abyss of the underworld. A member of the arts club shares his impression of the collection. Well, I love realist art, and you know, that's what I came here for, and I wasn't disappointed. Oh, the detail's incredible um, on just about all of them. I mean, that's, that's I think, great art. It has a lot of detail. And, and because they're of people, there's a lot of emotion that gets captured by that. The competition seeks to use realist oil painting to foster traditional values and positive ideals, such as righteousness, beauty, and compassion. Yeah, I do have to say I also really enjoy realist art and all these deep meanings that were captured there. I think you'll get, have the chance to do a deep dive, right? There is more coming up on that. Ah, okay, yeah. Well, you know, the symbolism here really is great. That symbol of the Inca, the Chicana, yeah. it symbolizes a bridge. Oh, yeah, so a lot of, lot of hidden meeting there. And, you know, there's just so much detail. Like you saw the page that the CCP police had. Mm. You can see the actual Chinese characters. Right. Yeah. Wow, amazing. amazing. All right, uh, stay tuned for the second part of our broadcast. Uh, we'll be back in just one minute. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here today's top stories. Republicans continue to favor former President Trump over Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in a new poll. And the latest update on a requested probe into Georgia prosecutor Fonnie Willis. Congressional Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to keep Trump on the Colorado ballot. Find out why they think the state ruling should be reversed. Illegal immigration numbers at the southern border are rising again. We have an update on the situation there. The U.S. launches more strikes against Houthi missiles in Yemen after another attack on a U.S.-owned ship in the Red Sea. The House and Senate passed a short-term spending bill yesterday, avoiding a government shutdown, and some House conservatives are fuming. Entities Melina Weiskopf reports. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Friday, January 19th, and in today's top news, Republicans continue to favor former President Trump over Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in a new poll. Meanwhile, Trump is pushing his strong stance on immigration by urging Congress not to compromise on a border deal, plus the latest update on a requested probe into Georgia prosecutor Fonnie Willis. We blasted it. 
According to data shared Thursday by ABC News, most Republicans are satisfied with former President Trump as the nominee rather than Governor Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley. The ABC News Ipsos poll conducted January 16th and 17th found that 75% of Republicans say they would feel satisfied with Trump as the GOP's presidential nominee, compared with 64% for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and 50% for Nikki Haley. And similar to other polls, 73% of the adults polled said Trump was the strongest leader compared to the other two. These Republicans and GOP leaners see Trump as the candidate who best represents their personal values and understands the problems of people like them. But it's notable that Trump's favorability increased in one area. Since a similar poll conducted before the Iowa caucuses, 12% more Americans believe Trump has the best chance of getting elected in November. With ratings like these, Trump feels like he's already won. He's been aggressively touting his border policies at campaign rallies. Because right now we have millions of people streaming into our country. It's an invasion. Remain in Mexico. You think that was easy to get? I got it. Trump said on Truth Social that he didn't think Congress should do a border deal at all unless we get everything needed to shut down the invasion. President Biden faces high disapproval on the border issue. Striking a deal could help Biden politically. Meanwhile, Trump's been having meetings about the deal. President Trump is not wrong. He and I have been talking about this um, uh, pretty frequently. I talked to him uh, night before last about the same subject. On the other hand, Trump is battling with a number of legal woes as he climbs back to the White House. In a win for Trump, a Georgia judge has ordered a hearing into allegations that Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis and the lead prosecutor were involved in an improper relationship. Trump co-defendant Mike Roman made the allegations in a court filing on January 8th. He said Wade has been benefiting financially in legal fees and that he's been using taxpayer funding to take Willis on lavish vacations. Judge Scott McAfee has given Willis until February 2nd to respond. Meanwhile, Republican Governor Brian Kemp doesn't want to get involved. In response to Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's request that he open an investigation, Kemp said it's not his job. He referred her to the state's oversight committee. Now we're taking a deep look at Haley's campaign ahead of the New Hampshire primary. So we speak to Raven Harrison, a political strategist and former congressional candidate. Good morning, Raven. Thanks for making the time today. Good morning. Glad to be here. What does Haley need to do in the Granite State to give her campaign a boost? Well, she needs to come with a different message. What she seems to have done since Iowa is come more of the directly attacking Trump. Why won't he debate me? Uh, he's afraid of me. And that strategy didn't work for the Democrats. It didn't work for DeSantis or any of the others, and it's not going to work for her. So she needs to come with something a little bit stronger to address the immediate concerns of the American people. Okay, Raven, so what can you tell us about Haley's popularity right now? Well, she seems to be popular. Uh, there's some shifting going along. Democrats, which a lot of people see as a good thing. She's not gaining any ground among Republicans. They are steadfast in their support of President Trump because of the kitchen table issues which are dominating this election scape. So she's surging in certain polls and will do well in New Hampshire, but not enough to, to bridge the lead that President Trump has. Yes, inflation being one of those kitchen table issues, it's going to be a huge issue for this election. Haley is said to have some stumbles recently, not saying that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. Analysts are pointing to these things. What else can you tell us about some issues there? 
Well, correct. Uh, the, the fact that she kind of softballed it was really disappointing to Republicans and, it was, and to Democrats alike. This is a really polarizing issue and they needed a strong stance. They need a leader who's going to come out and say, this is what it is. We know what erupted the Civil War. We know how it began. And the fact that she was backpedaling that being from South Carolina did not go well for her campaign. So she's had some other uh, issues come up about her stance on TikTok and whether the government should be uh, getting involved, which is basically at odds with the Republican standpoint as in a general of limited government. Yeah. And another thing I'll point out here is that Haley was saying that President Trump has to simultaneously answer for what happened on J6 and that she'll also pardon him. So a little bit of inconsistency there as well. Governor Ron DeSantis is polling pretty low in New Hampshire. Is there any chance for him there, or is he best off just investing his time elsewhere? He's better off uh, unifying behind the candidate. There's a lot of bad blood between him and former President Trump, but I think right now his presence is more of a distraction. Uh, Nikki Haley came in third place. He came in sec place, second place, but he doesn't seem to have any indication that he intends to pull out at this moment, even though the donors have dried up, the money's not coming in, the momentum is just not favoring him. It's just not there. So if time permits, we'll go more into the GOP primary, but let's look at the Democrat primary in New Hampshire. It's pretty unique after that spat over yes. President Biden trying to get South Carolina to be the first nominating contest and so forth. Do you think that there's going to be a lot of people writing his name in? I think there will be some, but I think that actually is what's given Nikki Haley some leverages because of the jockeying in New Hampshire. That's typically where the Democrats kick off. That's their launch point. That's their stronghold. And so the jockeying that went on to try to move that to South Carolina did not do the Democrats any good. That gave Nikki Haley a chance to gain some ground since she's heavily funded by Democrats. But I think that right now they will still try to hold strong to, to go against President Trump's message. And after New Hampshire is South Carolina's primary, what do you think? That yes. Probably the evangelical vote is going to be a big toss-up as to whether or not they're going to go with former President Trump or Governor Ron DeSantis? Well, I think that they're going to go with former President Trump. It's just the stance. Uh, Nikki Haley at one time was associated with President Trump's campaign, and uh, the message and the underlying strength on the immigration and the foreign policy are going to propel him there. I don't think that DeSantis is going to make any headway in South Carolina. I think that right now, this is where the popular vote and the statistical poll vote, poll vote will meet, and it will favor President Trump. Well, that's Haley's home state, so we'll have to see if she can do well yes. there. Some people just choose not to pay attention to the current events, like some people who were interviewed in Iowa. What advice do you have for Americans right now as this election season proceeds? My advice to Americans would to remember what we the people is. This is not up for politicians. You know, the same people who created these problems probably aren't going to be the ones who fix it. So I encourage people that this is the most pivotal election of our lifetime. Get involved, be active, be part of the change. Well, Raven Harrison, political strategist and former congressional candidate, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Nevada's Republican governor endorsed former President Trump yesterday. This offers major backing in a key swing state that Trump is looking to win easily in a caucus next month. Governor Joe Lombardo told the Nevada Independent yesterday he believes the economy and foreign affairs were more stable under Trump. He also said, for all practical purposes, the race is over. Trump endorsed Lombardo during a 2022 run for governor. Nevada has two nominating contests next month, a primary the state is required to run because of a 2021 law, and a caucus the Nevada State GOP is holding two days later. 
the Nevada GOP will only give the winner of the caucus delegates. They say any candidates signing up for the primary would be barred from the caucus. Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis chose the caucus. Nikki Haley opted for the primary. And around 180 congressional Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to keep Trump on Colorado's ballot. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator Ted Cruz, and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise were among those who signed an amicus brief submitted yesterday. The lawmakers argue the Colorado court interpreted Section 3 of the 14th Amendment improperly. The brief says enforcement of Section 3 should involve Congress to protect from abuse by state officials. They also argue that a state court has no right to circumvent Congress. That's because Congress is able to interject on Section 3 with a two-thirds vote up to the time a candidate holds office. The brief also states no insurrection occurred. It references Trump's statements asking demonstrators to act, quote, peacefully and patriotically. Trump is to remain on the Colorado ballot for now, pending a ruling by the Supreme Court. Around 40 briefs have been submitted to the high court since it agreed to hear Trump's appeal. And next up, the U.S. launches more strikes against Houthi missiles in Yemen after another attack on a U.S.-owned ship in the Red Sea. European lawmakers adopt a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Israel's war with Hamas. The details of the EU Parliament's decision coming up. The House and Senate passed a short-term spending bill yesterday, avoiding a government shutdown. And some House conservatives are fuming. Entities Melina Weiskup reports. Welcome back. The U.S. launched new strikes against Houthi anti-ship missiles in Yemen yesterday. The military says Houthis were aiming them at the Red Sea and deemed them an imminent threat to Navy vessels and shipping. The Houthis say they are acting in solidarity with Palestinians. They have vowed to keep attacking ships in response to strikes by the U.S. and the U.K. President Biden acknowledged yesterday that strikes by the U.S. had not stopped the Houthis' attacks. He says a military response will continue. The Pentagon said the U.S. is not at war with the Houthis and that it's only working with its partners in self-defense. The U.S. says two of the Houthis' anti-ship missiles hit near a U.S.-owned tanker last night but caused no injuries or damage. The Houthis claimed responsibility for the attack and boasted of scoring direct hits. Israel's military pushed deep into the southern city of Han Yunus yesterday. The IDF says troops eliminated dozens of terrorists in close quarters combat with tank and air support. Meanwhile, Israel's prime minister appears to be rejecting calls from the U.S. for a two-state solution. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has an update on the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's military says one of its brigades Thursday pushed further south than any of its troops before. Fierce battles and close-quarter combat were reported inside Han Yunis. The IDF says it killed 60 Hamas terrorists over a 24-hour period, with 40 in the southern city. Israel says Hamas is operating out of Nasser Hospital, the enclave's largest functioning hospital. Prime Minister Netanyahu says around two-thirds of Hamas's combat regiments have been destroyed, and that clearing the territory of terrorists would be next. He vowed to achieve a decisive victory, saying it will take many more months. 
Netanyahu appeared to reject the idea of a Palestinian state, declaring Israel needs security control over all territory west of the Jordan River in any future arrangement. He called it a necessary condition that collides with the idea of sovereignty. I tell this truth to our American friends, and I also stop the attempt to impose a reality on us that would harm Israel's security. A prime minister in Israel should be able to say no, even to our best friends. The leader says Israel is ready to recruit countries in the region to support a reconstruction effort after the war, and that conditions are clear, with war cabinet discussions well underway to destroy Hamas, completely demilitarize Gaza, and to have a civilian administration that doesn't terrorize Israel or preach its destruction. The U.S. is calling on Israel to scale back its offensive and says a Palestinian state should come after the war. Without a tangible path to the establishment of a Palestinian state, there are no other partners in the region who are going to step forward and help with the reconstruction of Gaza. The State Department says Secretary Blinken has commitments from nearby Arab countries to help rebuild, but only with a clear path forward. On medicine for hostages, Netanyahu stated the Red Cross refused to help, so a Qatari mediator was used instead. He said that the medicine will reach every last abductee who needs it, and I expect him to keep his word. Qatar says the medicine arrived Wednesday, but did not confirm if hostages had received it. Qatar's spokesman warned of the war expanding into what he called a regional spillover in the Red Sea, in Lebanon, in Iraq, and even in Syria, and now uh, the situation between Iran and, uh, and its neighbors. Turkey's foreign minister said Thursday Iran and Pakistan do not want to escalate tensions and says he urged his counterparts to quickly help restore calm. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. European lawmakers adopted a resolution on Thursday calling for a permanent ceasefire in Israel's war against Hamas. But only on the condition that the terrorist group be eliminated and all its hostages released. The resolution is non-binding. It was adopted by 312 votes in favor, 131 against, and 72 abstentions. It's the first time the parliament called for a permanent ceasefire. Israel has vowed to dismantle Hamas to ensure it can never repeat an attack like the one on October 7th. Since the attack, the EU has struggled to strike a balance between supporting Israel's right to defend itself and ensuring the rights of civilians on both sides are protected. European lawmakers also expressed deep concern at the declining humanitarian situation in the Gaza Strip. They asked for a two-state solution to be put back on track. The House and Senate passed a short-term spending bill yesterday, avoiding a government shutdown. It's the third time this fiscal year Congress kicked the can down the road on funding, and House conservatives are fuming. Entity's Melina Wisecup has the details. Both the House and Senate raced to pass a temporary extension to government funding, but it didn't slide by with no opposition. There were 18 Republicans in the Senate who opposed it, as well as more than 100 Republicans in the House who opposed it. And there were more Democrats, as a matter of fact, who voted to pass this than Republicans, which just shows the level of frustration that Republicans have over this spending issue. To speak to the point of why there is opposition over this particular bill, while there are those who are 
are always opposed to continuing resolutions because they just see them as an extension or delay of Congress's inability to budget. You have other Republicans now who are trying to push the message that they do not want to fund the Department of Homeland Security without first seeing border policy change. Then you have the concern over just the sheer level of government spending. Congressman Chip Roy, who's a member of the Freedom Caucus himself, took to the House floor today to remind lawmakers what actually they're funding with this temporary extension. Here's what he had to say, along with how his speaker, Mike Johnson, has tried to fend off some of this criticism. We will fund a weaponized Department of Justice and FBI going after parents like Scott Smith and Mark Houck. I've got more because that's what we're doing. We are voting to fund a federal bureaucracy that has war with the American people while we indebt our, gen our children for generations. And this is an important thing for us because it allows us to fight for our policy changes, our policy writers in those spending bills. And it takes time to do that. And so the reason we need just a little bit more time on the calendar is to allow that process to play out. The question is, will they actually be able to reach that goal with this three-week extension that they're giving themselves? The Senate has only passed three of its 12 appropriations bills, and the House has passed seven of its 12. There are still five more for the House to consider, and that's been a challenge for this Republican-led House because of interparty disagreement over certain policies and priorities. So the question now is, will this third continuing resolution during this fiscal year be the last one? Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. An uptick in illegal immigration into the U.S. A source in law enforcement says U.S. authorities at the southern border are apprehending around 4,000 a day. And as Chicago tries to stop the flow from Texas, a transportation company is taking legal action. Here's the story. A law enforcement source told CNN that authorities are now detaining around 4,000 illegal immigrants a day. This week's numbers mark an increase from earlier this month when there were roughly 3,000 apprehensions per day. But it's still far less than the 10,000 daily encounters that were observed at one point last month. Texas has been chartering buses to various sanctuary cities, including New York, Denver, and Chicago. But these cities have introduced legislation to restrict arrival. We have reached a critical point um, in this mission that absent real significant intervention immediately, our local economies are not designed and built to respond to this type of crisis. We are literally building a system as we go along. Some bus companies are taking legal action. Texas-based Wind Transportation filed a lawsuit against the city of Chicago. The suit says the rule violates interstate commerce and violates the constitutional rights of Wind's passengers. It states the ordinance is intentionally discriminatory. The bus company is also wrapped up in a legal battle with New York. Wynn is among 17 companies that are being sued by the city for $700 million over transporting illegal immigrants from Texas. Yeah, you know, I remember going down to the Roosevelt Hotel that's an intake center for migrants coming to New York City, and it's been cast as the new Ellis Island, but there's a major difference. Ellis Island dealt with legal immigration, whereas that is involving illegal immigration. Right. I mean, this is an ongoing story for a long time, right? And I think it's just going to be a long battle from here. But also with the cold weather, we should keep in mind that, you know, there is a lot of suffering going on. When we spoke to um, on the show with another expert, she was saying that people that do not have a place to live, you know, when they were outside of the Roosevelt Island, they were not able to get a room. They, there is a lot of um, issues with uh, human trafficking there as well. So yeah, something well, to keep in mind as well. Yeah, and in the winter, you see all those thermal blankets at the border down there. It's really just it's piling up because there's so many. Hmm. Yeah. 
All right, we have to wrap our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.